0: You're listening to Senior RX Radio, brought to you by ASCP. Visit us online at ascp.com/podcasts. ASCP, Empowering Pharmacists, Transforming Aging.
1: Welcome to Senior RX Radio. I am Dr. Jaron Stout,
0: and I am Dr. Joanne Pio, and we are your hosts of Senior RX Radio. On today's show, we have Dr. Kaylee Mailman a pharmacist who will be discussing the 2021 American Diabetes Association guidelines with us.
1: Welcome to the show, Kaylee. We're excited to have you. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks, Jaren. I'm really excited to be here.
0: So we went through basically all the oral medications except one. This (laughs) is the glitazones. (laughs) So we have pioglitazone. What is the benefit of this medication? I think
2: the benefit of it is that they're now low cost. Obviously, I'm not gonna, I just made a recommendation just before I got on here with you guys. Patient was on piaglitazone. What do you know? A new order for uh, torsemide. Patient had heart failure. It's not It's not a surprise, right? So in our healthier patients that don't have CHF and don't have problems with edema and fluid retention, it is one of our lower, lower cost agents because they have been around for so long. So again, same sort of idea here with the sulfonylureas in that Certain patients, this medication could be perfectly safe and fine for and be a lower cost option. But a lot of our patients that are more advanced in their disease in long term care facilities have multiple comorbidities. And these just, again, last and least. And please don't start these in (laughs) patients with fluid retention problems or CHF. So
0: here's my next question for you. You brought a very good point. Let's say we're in the outpatient setting. Before we discussed, you know, if a patient's on metformin, you know, a low cost additive medication might be glipizide. Would you choose pioglitazone before the glipizide if the patient did not have heart failure? I think possibly, depending on their risk for hypoglycemia
2: we know that the tzds such as pioglitazone do have a lower risk of hypoglycemia but they also have you know a lower efficacy of a1c lowering potential so i think the question is going to be how much more do we you know how much more a1c lowering potential do we need for these patients and you know if they just need a smidge more help they're not at risk for any of the you know contraindicated disease states they could definitely be an, an option to go to, obviously with monitoring and education on what to look for if things, you know, were to be adverse drug events. But they don't have to. If we have a fan club for the GLP ones, we don't necessarily have to have a haters club for the TZDs. We just have to be good stewards of using them where they are appropriate.
1: Absolutely, and I I think I'm in the minority, but I I really like Actos. I've used it in the right, correct scenarios, which is, you know, it has a limited scope, but I've used it very effectively to get rid of a lot of sliding scale because it is a little more powerful. It's only once a day and it, it's able to help reduce the, the, the burden on the nursing staff when they're checking blood glucose four times a day. So.
2: Yeah. I would say if you can replace sliding scale with this, that's a home run in in the patient.
1: Yeah. And so, so, I mean, we, we talked a little bit about socioeconomic status and in the right pricing for different drugs and, and the right populations. So a lot of people don't realize this because, you know, insulin is fully covered typically by insurance. And, and, you know, our population that we work with is Medicare B primarily. And so they get fully covered testing strips and testing supplies and needles and insulin, and they don't have to look at the price. But I've recommended a DPP-4 to a doctor and he's like, well, isn't that too expensive. And I said, well, have you looked at the cost of insulin plus testing strips plus needles? And it's actually, you know, pretty close in cost to the DPP four. Plus, but we're saving a ton of time by not weighing down the nurses. So sliding scale insulin is a huge, huge burden on the nursing staff. And it's a huge cost to healthcare. And it's totally unnecessary. And it just, it's one of my pet peeves. And I've made a very good reputation with a lot of providers in helping get rid of a lot of sliding scale. But we're also limited in how we're able to do that in our short-term rehab stays. But if we are diligent as pharmacists looking in their history, if they're on sliding scale on admission, we should look and see if that was their home regimen. Because if it's not, we should try to work with the nursing staff in the facility to return them as close as we can to their home regimen before they go so they don't go home on a sliding scale. What do you have to say about that?
2: Oh boy, how long do you have? <laughs> <New time>.
1: Yeah. Huge <laughs> topic.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I'm I also despise sliding scale insulin. I think it creates more problems than it fixes. And I think that just it being on board, I think providers tend to look at it as sort of a safety net in that if we were to have those blood glucose excursions, you know, maybe they're not getting that phone call or you know there's a there's a treatment in place for that hyperglycemia but but on the the other side of that coin is the the potential risk for hypoglycemia so oh, oh my goodness i don't even know where to start so let's talk about the patient that maybe came in with an order for sliding scale insulin at home especially in our senior care population so i would look at that patient and say was the reason for admission a hypoglycemic event because obviously, if it was, we don't want to send them back home on sliding scale insulin. We also know that what can happen concurrently with diabetes is cognitive decline. The guidelines recommend that you know patients be screened for cognitive impairment at age 65 and then annually thereafter, which brings me to another point in that one of the struggles with our documentation in nursing facilities is typically when we're, when we're looking at cognitive function, we're looking at the BIM score. And the BIM score only really gives us a snapshot in time. It doesn't tell us overall cognitive dysfunction. So we need to be looking at scales such as the the MMSE, the the MINICOG, the MOCA to assess whether our patients are really capable, are still capable. You know, they may have been doing this for years at home, but if we start to see that cognitive decline, sliding scale insulin in the home setting can be very, very risky. It can also be risky in the nursing home setting because sliding and scale insulin tends to become a, a med pass time medication and not a with meals medication. So, you know, it comes due on the mar, we have a certain window to give it, maybe the lunch card is late and we've given the patient, you know, 4, 6, 10 units of, of coverage, and then they're not eating for an hour. So it just, again, it presents just, you know, just so high risk for the little reward And also what I like to point out, and Jaren, you're going to have to just continue to rein me in and burn me back on topic, but I think this is a really important point because we really need to look at the prognosis of our patients and their blood glucose goals because we know for patients with multiple comorbidities that maybe don't have a long life expectancy, we're shooting for an A1C goal of less than eight. And what that averages out to in an average blood glucose level is around 183. And if you think about you know, us using sliding scale insulin in patients, the, the coverage typically starts at 150. So we're giving someone coverage for a tighter glycemic goal than we really want to achieve. So for patients, in, depending on where they're at in their, in their disease state, I usually recommend if we need to use sliding scale insulin, maybe at, for a short period of time, ideally not for a long period of time, that we start coverage at 200. Because then that will give us a lot less blood glucose lability, a lot less risk of hypoglycemia. It's just it's safer for the patients in that specific time when they could potentially need sliding scale insulin. So, you know, you mentioned our skilled patients. So, what's really difficult about sliding scale insulin in our skilled patients is that obviously they were doing one thing at home, they had different eating habits at home, they maybe their medication compliance was different at home, they then were in the hospital where they maybe had an acute infection. Maybe they were receiving steroids for something. And you know the hospital is going to go pretty bare bones with regard to maintenance medications and uh, maintain them mostly on sliding scale just to prevent, again, those acute hyperglycemic excursions. And then when they come to us, they're still on a controlled diet, but we resume some of those home medications, maybe not the entire home regimen. We are maybe still running IV antibiotics that may still have an infection. They might be on a uh, you know a steroid tape or things of that nature. So I think it's just really important to, you know, assess why the patient came to us in the first place, their their competency in managing their medications, and then just try to get them discharged on the safest possible regimen. You know, a lot of the medications that we use, like metformin, the SGLT2s, the GLP1s the DPP-4s are low-risk hypoglycemic medications. And the highest risk of hypoglycemic medications is obviously sliding scale insulin. So, you know, we need to do everything in our in our power to, you know, help our senior care population to have that low risk for hypoglycemia, you know, and also just streamline their medications so it's not so cumbersome. So that was a tangent. So bring me <laughs> back if there's more you want me to address.
1: <laughs> I gotta say, that was like, picture perfect you hit every aspect that i was gonna that i was gonna hit on here the a1c goal is is crucial because i mean i'll i'll help a doctor get rid of sliding scale and then the nurse will come in the next day and get a glucose of 223 lunch and then call and say we need sliding scale back and so it's so frustrating and i think that's one of the things we should be doing more as pharmacists educating nursing staff hey if their a1c goal is 7.2 Don't freak out about a blood glucose of 223. It's going to happen every once in a while and it's okay. And the starting sliding scale at 200 is exactly what I was going to touch on as well. And especially in those short term rehab patients, if they're on steroids, a lot of times that's why they're on sliding scale. So if we keep track of when that steroid is tapered and discontinued, then we can start talking about, hey, that's gone. Probably don't need the sliding scale anymore. And another thing, one thing that I was hoping you would say that I didn't hear, the only thing that I can think of was that. When I'm trying to get rid of sliding scale, if I can only get rid of one dose, I always try to get rid of the bedtime because that's a postprandial dose. Absolutely. And a lot of people don't realize how high of a risk that creates of morning hypoglycemia. And it happens so often. And just, I mean, on doctors that I have that are, you know, really stingy about their sliding scale because they just don't want to get a phone call, even even though it's really easy to get rid of if you just work with me, is that if you get rid of that, that, that's the one thing I can still get them to do is get rid of that bedtime dose of sliding scale because it is a high risk.
2: Absolutely. That is, I think sliding scale HS is my biggest pet peeve along with that order for an HS snack because we don't, it's the chicken and the egg, right? We don't need one without the other. And definitely, you know, watching for that, that morning time hypoglycemia. And then are we ordering, you know, are we ordering a, a blood sugar check at 0600? And then is nursing going to hold the Lantus because their blood sugar is low? It's just, it's just this cascade of, of chaos that I continue to see with, you know, we're just, we're testing too often. We're, we're giving too much insulin. We're just ta- chasing our tails here. And when it would, it's just really going to improve our senior patient's quality of life to have Less finger sticks, less injections, less hypoglycemic right. events. Because a lot of the problem too with senior patients is just hypoglycemic unawareness because they could be on... Just one example is a, a beta blocker that could mask those symptoms. And the next thing you know, we've had a fall and we're in the hospital. So absolutely getting rid of that HS, you know, that HS dose. Another way that I kind of successfully help providers get you know, more okay with eliminating sliding scale, when I'm looking at, think of a specific patient, where you notice their blood glucose is just so, so labile. So maybe their fasting's 89. And then at lunch, they're, you know, 350. And we're giving them 10 units. And then, you know, at dinner, they're down in the basement again, and at 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 HS, they're still low. And then the next morning, they're at 350. And so we're, you know, we're chasing our tails here. A lot of what I recommend that I find providers are comfortable with is I'll say, let's hold coverage for seven days, continue those checks Obviously, you're going to have to include an order for whatever you're comfortable with if blood sugar is greater than 350, if blood sugar is greater than 400 to call provider. But if we give those patients a week without coverage, we can actually assess their overall blood glucose control and then maybe you know, notice the actual trends and then get, you know, an oral medication on board or something of that nature. Because we oftentimes we're creating the problem where none would exist without sliding scale.
1: Okay. Yeah. Thank you. I, I love it. So I'm going to ask one last follow-up question because we're running out of time. It'll be We'll make it as brief as we can. I have in my head a thing that I kind of go to when I see a situation. For instance, so I'm going to ask you what, give you a scenario. I want you to tell me just real briefly, I would start X, start Y, and yada, yada. And, All right. you know, keep it very simple. And I'll, and I'll tell you mine as well if you want. Yeah, uh, let's, let's say, do it. Let's say a patient has, you know, uses sliding scale over 80% of the time. They average about 17 units per day of sliding scale. And they're not on any oral agents, but they have been on metformin in the past, but they had an acute kidney injury. So in that situation, they have normal kidney function. So I would, so what would be your step to help get rid of that sliding scale real quick?
2: Really quick. I'd restart the metformin and order, you know, a a BMP in a week and, you know, and then a you know, maybe just some subsequent BMPs just to make sure that our renal
1: function is maintaining normal. Okay. Is that what you would do? Would you add just metformin or any any other agents?
2: If they're using 17 units a day, I, you know, metformin is so patient interdependent. I've seen patients, you know, even though it's not supposed to happen, I've seen patients with an A1C of 10 come to within goal just with metformin. So I would be hesitant to start any additional agents just to see how sensitive the patient is to metformin and if we can get to where we need to be without anything else.
1: Well said. Yeah, start low and go slow with our elderly population. And it's always good to make it patient specific. I would always look in their history to make sure, you know, I, I see if they've been on more than one med in the past. But um, a lot of times if it's that high, I'll usually do metformin and Genuvia at once just because Genuvia is a, a low risk of hypoglycemia. Yeah, Like you said, if, if they've been on Metformin stable in the past on just Metformin, then I probably would just stick to just Metformin and see how we respond from there. So very good. Awesome.
2: Yeah, no, and I love the idea of the DPP-4 combo as well. Yeah, I, I, I'm I just thinking of, uh, again, um, provider compliance with recommendations. So yeah, but no, I I, I love it. Sounds, sounds great.
0: Thank you so much, Dr. Kaylee Melman, for coming on today's show with us and discussing the new guidelines. Thank you so much for having me; it's been
1: a pleasure. And I forgot to mention for our listeners that Kaylee is the award recipient of our Next Gen RX Award from ASCP at the last conference. So, well done! Congratulations Woo! on that. Oh
2: <laughs> goodness. I Jaren, you are were equally deserving of that of that <laughs> yes. award. So so <laughs> thank you very much though.
0: You're listening to Senior RX Radio, brought to you by ASCP. Visit us online at ascp.com slash podcasts. ASCP, empowering pharmacists, transforming aging.